Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. This week's episode focuses on the massive cultural impact of Acid House on Great Britain. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, or should I say Techno Roll, because I'm joined by my cohort, Ryan Hartness, and we're continuing our odyssey into the history of DJs and dance music. We're discussing the book, Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton, and we are the big doings. We said we were at the big doings when we did House and Techno, but this is the really big doings. This is the acid house explosion when electronic dance music takes over the pop culture scene in Britain in a way it had never done. I mean, disco took over pop culture in America in the 70s and in much of Europe. But for whatever reason, it never quite sunk in in Britain. And then Acid House comes along in the late 80s and just blows the doors off. Yeah, this is basically kind of a part one of two because it it captures – uh there, there there's first they catches up on everything that's been going on in, in britain from like say like the 60s until the 80s the last time we were here we were talking about northern soul there's a very small little smattering of high energy that's discussed through the 80s but they really have to catch us up on what's been going on and uh we have to say not a whole lot this is uh the first 20 pages of the of the acid house chapter really deals with uh funk soul and rare groove and it's a real odd duck of a scene with the only real connection to acid house being it was all these soul boys who were so into the underground kind of counterculture uh rare groove scene these are the same people that end up going to ibiza and bringing back acid house yes and it's jazz funk not soul jazz very confusing but but um yeah, the, the the way they've done this narrative is very interesting. I mean, Northern Soul is essentially happening at the same time as jazz funk is happening in London. Northern Soul is happening in the north, obviously. And then high energy is also happening in the middle of the events they're discussing in this chapter. Because the way they do this chapter, it starts in the early 70s. And this chapter is basically explaining what the Brits had instead of disco. And, I mean, fundamentally, they didn't have the sound systems. It wasn't until Heaven in 1981 that became the first high-energy club that you had a a Richard Long sound system in England. Um, They just didn't have the vibe. They didn't have the social scene. The racial dynamics are different in Britain. The Just the whole society is different. And you had this long extended period of serious DJs and serious music connoisseurs, but they weren't beat matching for one thing. Like they weren't blending, they weren't mixing. It's just a very different scene. And their analog to disco, the jazz funk scene, was pushing 
jazz and jazz fusion. Soul jazz is one of the genres that, that they was in their mix. Some disco, but yeah, it's just fascinating the things that catch on. And really the story of this chapter is how an area can go from being a cultural backwater to being at the absolute forefront of world cult, world pop culture in basically the blink of an eye. It's it's you know, Britain was the world center of pop culture briefly in the 60s, the whole run of the Beatles. By the time of glam rock, their rock music isn't exporting to America the way it had been. There's still heavy metal is huge in America, and Brits are at the forefront of that. But the the American and British pop scenes get out of sync in the early 70s and stay out of sync. Punk revolutionize, revolutionizes the British scene, uh, barely makes a dent in America until the 90s. And so it's just a whole different scene. And I think that part of the reason Acid House hit so hard and so big in England is because they didn't have the overwhelming overdose of disco that America had. And electronic music kind of trickled up in America in an organic way, slowly and regionally, whereas in England, after these um, soul boys go to Ibiza and have this conversion experience, and also ecstasy hits the shores of Britain. And that can't be underestimated. I mean, you just had a had a moment when the right mix of music and drugs hit a country and it hit it hard. Yeah, the, there's a... There, there's a real feeling uh, through this whole chapter that the that this is a reaction to basically the 70s and the 80s, the way that the UK government functioned, the way the UK economy was going, the way everything was being turned real, real kind of stodgy and proper. They had years where the government was sucking the fun out of everything and telling everybody that you can be an individual, but not in a fun way where, where individuality rules, but only in the confines of this bleak system where you're responsible for yourself and there's no society. And I just feel like there was a massive backlash and a culture counterculture that came out of that. And, uh, you know, normally I don't like to put too much emphasis on the effect of, of, of a drug on, uh, on any kind of, uh, dancing. I usually find that it's overwrought, but this time, like you can't, you can't deny the fact that ecstasy taught people in the UK to ditch a whole lot of those, uh, kind of tribal ideas that they had about, you know, wrong accent, wrong region, wrong kind of music, wrong sexuality, uh, wrong race. And all of a sudden they kind of realized that none of that mattered and you needed something like ecstasy to kick that off and, and, and show people the way. Yeah, definitely. And let's, let's give some of the quotes, some of the sort of grand statements they make in the book about Acid House. Like, Acid House was cultural revolution. You can't understand modern Britain without knowing the changes it wrought. It was nothing less than a defining era of British social history. Acid House was when Britain shook off the gray dust it had been wearing since World War II. In the 60s, you could tune in to out, but only if you are a hip photographer or a rock star or if daddy kept up the rent on your King's Road flat. This time the voyage of discovery was opened up for nearly everybody. And that's an important distinction and something you wouldn't really know unless you lived there. I mean, reading about the 60s in Britain, it seems like everybody was partying with Keith Richards and Brian Jones at their court room flat, but that was not the case. They're partying with Tara Brown, the Guinness heir, and other people from the House of Lords. So sort of a new aristocracy emerged from the working classes in the 60s, but it was not spread wide. And, you know, all through the 80s, they, they have another litany 
here's a quote. Pubs closed at 11. Bars didn't exist except for wine bars full of wine and yuppies. Clubs kicked out at 2 a.m. Recreational drugs didn't go past foods, weed, and speed, and the latter two were trickier, scary to buy. We didn't even have Red Bull. So, yeah, it's it's this long gray period. It's not just the Thatcher 80s. It's all the way, the hardship from the end of World War II, the stiff upper lip. And this is the first generation that came along that really had no memory of World War II uh, whatsoever. I mean, the people who were born in the late 60s are now partying, and World War II is a very distant memory by this time. And it just really um, threw the floodgates open into this mass social change. And that's one thing I appreciate the book, because... I knew it was a big deal, but in the States, you know, heavy metal was immensely huge at this point in time. And even underground heavy metal is starting to become massively popular. Punk is is continuing to become more and more popular and is going to result in the big grunge explosion. And house and techno are underground scenes kind of contained in the dance clubs. And when Acid House hit big in England, the first thing we heard about it over here was these bands from Manchester. They were calling it Madchester. And it was initially marketed in the States as sort of a subset of rock and roll. And that's a whole, we'll get to the Manchester thing a little later, but it's fascinating the way these genres, when a new genre comes along, the dominant genre will frequently try to adapt to it. And sometimes it successfully absorbs the other genre. And sometimes it fails. And this was the first time that rock music had failed to absorb a new genre since it had become the dominant thing in the in the mid-60s. So it, it's a fascinating, fascinating period. Yeah. And uh, it's important to, I think, note that, you know, everybody's got their idea of, of, of British life. I think on the outside, it looks pretty gray and, and, and wet and boring, but uh, more specifically going into the general view of nightlife at the time, uh, from everything that I've read, uh, these, the pubs were stodgy and boring and full, full of old people, and the clubs were being ruined by velvet rope politics that kept uh, everybody separated. Like If you spoke you know, the, the wrong dialect, if you were from the wrong part of town, if you happened to be you know, even, even a touch, like looking like an immigrant or something like that, you weren't getting in. And uh, all the clubs were playing the same kind of stuff that inspired no loyalty or greater feeling. Um, and it was just, it just seems like the scene was going through the motions and something new had to happen to freshen everything up. Absolutely. And let's hear what they started with in the jazz funk scene. Uh, this is Grover Washington Jr., who kind of a pioneer of what later became smooth jazz. And this was an attempt to commercialize jazz in the late 60s or to keep it commercial. And this was adopted um, by the punters in Britain for a long time. This is Grover Washington Jr. with Mr. Magic. Grover Washington Jr. with Mr. Magic. And a couple more notes before we go back chronologically and start at the beginning, but that the strict definition of acid house is a subset of house that 
misuses the Roland 303 baseline machine. Um, Futures Acid Tracks is the one, and we've discussed this on the show before, that that's the, this is the first acid track. But in Britain, acid house became a blanket term for all electronic dance music, for techno, for house, even Balearic. It's all introduced at the same time, essentially, comes at the same time as X comes into the scene. And so when we talk about acid house in this chapter, we're basically talking about electronic dance music in Britain uh, from, say, 89 to 93, 94. Yeah, it's kind of acid house became the umbrella term in the UK that contained house, all house, and it contained the techno and all the rave music that would that would kind of uh, that would evolve out of it. It all ended up being acid house, and a big part of that was you know because it was such a salacious name. The the press loved calling it acid house because uh, you know what what else looks scary in uh, in big high point font on the front of a newspaper like Balearic people can't even spell or pronounce that word properly so <laughs> you, you go when you say it's acid house and it's scary and it's funny because you know again we say that acid is really uh, not acid the drug but the three or three baseline but you go one step back from before that and futures acid track came from a uh, DJ Pierre. He gave his song that first acid track to Ron Hardy at the music box back in, uh, back in uh, Chicago. And he would play it when everybody was freaking out on acid late at night and it became known as Ron Hardy's acid track. So it's kind of a funny thing where we say, well, you know, acid doesn't really mean acid, but you go far enough back and that cover kind of scratches away and you realize, okay, this really is <laughs> about the acid. So just a funny little side note there. I'm glad you brought up the whole LSD in America thing because, and we've talked about this on the show a few times, LSD was massive in the States in the 80s. And apparently it wasn't that big in Britain in, in the 80s until this acid house revolution. And then it was sort of secondary to X. Um, but in the States, it was massive. So yeah, in Chicago, the, the kids were dancing house and doing LSD. The Grateful Dead was one of the biggest concert draws in the States for that entire decade. And everywhere they went, there was a whole cottage industry of LSD manufacturers and distributors that spread the stuff. And then it spilled out into all kinds of other scenes, the dance scene, the punk scene, the metal scene. Um, if you were at all hip to drugs in the 80s in the States, you were exposed to LSD. And... Um, you know, and apparently it was different in Britain. They didn't have that background, but they did have the memory of the LSD moral panic in the 60s. So, yeah, the, the tabloid media really grabbed on to Acid House and and pounded it. Um, and one more track before we go back to the beginning that, that it wasn't. Here's here's a quote from their section on musical meteorites. He says, this wasn't just the latest batch of hot tunes from the States. And keep in mind, ever since trad jazz in the 50s, Britain had been following America's lead on musical culture. This was a new dawn. Music that belonged to the DJ as never before, envisaged, created, and produced by the DJ with little little regard for musical tradition and that's the thing like disco and reggae and high energy and various genres we've talked about were brought to fruition on the dance floor by djs and frequently they were produced or remixed by djs but even something like you know saw the stock eggman waterman guys doing the high energy turned pop productions they had a massive studio you know 48 tracks 62 tracks 64 tracks whatever 
putting in big money into producing Kylie Minogue and Rick Astley and, and with these electronic sounds and these massive Fairlight synthesizers that cost tens of thousands of pounds and stuff. Whereas the Chicago house was kids in their house with relatively cheap uh, equipment. So, you know, whereas the promise of punk rock had been, you know, just learn three chords on your guitar and you can, you can, be a creator. This was even cheaper and easier and anybody could do it. You didn't have to be a musician at all. So um, let's go back to the beginning now. The, 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 they, they, they go back to the early 70s and they're, and they're pretty harsh on British DJs. They're like, British DJs had more in common with bingo callers, hospital radio presenters, and MCs at the local men's club. Mixing was for cakes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the songs were treated reverentially. The DJ would talk between the songs. And you can't beat match jazz fusion. If something's in a 7 16th time signature and the next song you want to play is in a 9 8 time signature, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, so they would do these careful segues and, and talk it over and blend it. You know, there was some skill to it, but they were not mixing in the way that Francis Grasso and other American DJs had been doing since the late 60s. And there was a legitimate hostility towards mixing. Uh, a lot of people thought it was a just a just a just a trend and not going to stick around. And, and and they had this idea that that if you were if you were going to be mixing records back to back, it was going to create a real homogenous, uh, boring set. And uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to say that that's that's incorrect because when you when you kind of look at how uh, DJ mixes go nowadays, if you got to stay at one BPM and you got to stay in a relatively uh, sane genre in order for things to sound well it does kind of keep you in a bit of a corner comparatively so i'm you know they weren't completely wrong they just didn't see where it was going yeah and 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 just had their own scene and their own mores and ways of doing it and um there's a guy that they cite greg james at the embassy in april 78 he comes in april stays for six months it's called London's Little Studio 54. It's it's a club put together by the same people who are later going to put together Ian Levine's Heaven. And and Greg James schooled UK DJs in how to do mixing, including including Ian Levine, Jazzy M, Tony DeVitt, other people that are either played a part in the high energy part of our story or are going to play a part going this. And uh, Steve Howlett, aka Froggy, actually went to New York and went to the Paradise Garage to study, uh, you know, learn from Larry Levin, and Initially, people are like, why aren't you talking? You know, like, where's the, the, the I didn't hear a DJ talking. Where's the DJ? You know, the, um, it was very alien to, to the way um, things were done in in Britain. Yeah, it was and, almost a, a binary. There was there was an idea that there was uh, mic DJs and mix DJs, and there were two very different things, and they were kept very separate. Yeah, which you can kind of see in the States as well. You know, the mic DJs become the hip hop MCs and and the the board DJs either become hip hop DJs and mixing in the background or their house DJs and producers and um, bring in you know a soul diva to sing over the top rather than rapping. But let's um, let's hear one more. This is um, going to be our rare groove sample, which is a genre that came along later in the 80s and essentially it's more british obsessing about cool r&b mostly from the states but also from africa and jamaica this is aie's black blood from 1975 
that was AIE's Black Blood, an example of Rare Groove, which we're still catching up, um, which we'll talk about in a minute, which is a genre that became dominant in British dance clubs in the 80s after jazz funk had kind of sputtered out. But first, let's start up jazz funk. And, and it, it's traced back to one DJ, one club. Crackers was the club, an unprepossessing jazz funk club in London. George Powers was there, DJing from 1976 to 1981. And they, they, they cite that the primeval soup of Acid House started bubbling at Crackers because you've got DJs like Jazzy B, Fabio, Norman Jay, Terry Farley, Trouble Anderson, Ashley Beadle, Carl Cox, Johnny Walker, others that are going to be big parts of our Acid House story start becoming dance-focused here at Crackers. Um, it's a fashion focal point to the punk era. Some people say punk fashion started at Crackers even before it started at Malcolm McLaren's shop Sex and the Sex Pistols. Um, and it also is important because it was, quote, the dawn of black Britishness. It offered a generation of London-born black youth the identity they'd been missing, which basically it meant that black youth could slip away from the reggae clubs, which were totally black dominated and white people could come, but they were basically tourists. Crackers was an racially integrated club from day one and a sexually integrated club from day one. And welcome to gay people. This is where Crackers is the best analog to say David Mancuso's loft in New York, but it's very much a regional backwater version of that. You know, it doesn't have the massive sound system, definitely no light show. But Powers is, you know, playing a lot of the same Philly soul that becomes the bedrock of disco. He's also playing a lot of Latin jazz and salsa, which is ha having this big explosion in the early 70s. Um, and he mixes in a lot of jazz funk, a lot of the smooth jazz like Grover Washington that we played, and also some fusion jazz and things like the Dixie Dregs and Spyro Gyra that, you know, looking back are just the widest, lamest jazz turned Muzak type stuff possible, but that was part of their mix and, and George Powers could make it work. But over time, um, that set, that style kind of choked on itself. It, it dominated British club culture from the seventies to the end of the eighties. They call the suburban cousin to the West End soul circuit. Um, you know, it was, it was a grim time, economic hardship, and then the imposition of neoliberalism under Thatcher and, yeah, it's just it's just kind of a crazy scene. And the big difference between jazz funk and Northern Soul is they were looking forward. They were trying to find the next thing, whereas Northern Soul had opted out of the pop culture treadmill. <clears throat> Although ultimately, Northern Soul leads directly to high energy, and and it's a big influence on the pop culture of the '80s in Britain. But it wasn't trying to do that, whereas jazz funk was was trying to do that. And so many of these guys, um, you know. So many of the key hipsters, the the people they called the Bromley contingent, like Susie Sue and Billy Idol, that later become big punk rockers, are there. Future stars like Boy George of the Culture Club, the lead people from Spando Ballet and Depeche Mode are, are there at Crackers, and you know, and at the Gold Mine in Canvey Island. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a crazy time. Thoughts on the jazz funk era, Ryan? 
Well, it's 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 a confusing scene to me because it's basically the first one that I can't really wrap my head around the music that it's built around. You you, you read and watch interviews with guys like Norman Jay, who's like one of the rare groove uh, jazz funk like like key figures in, in London. Uh, but um, you can and there's no doubt that this is a scene that takes music very seriously. But listening to the playlists now, I just don't understand how it could sustain like a like a dance scene. And maybe that's where I'm misunderstanding it and then it's more of a cultural scene. There was, uh, they talk about dance offs and stuff like that. And interesting stories about how, you know, if you were a white guy at crackers and you, you got off the carpet onto the, onto the actual tiled dance floor, someone would come up and they would dance off you and really embarrass you. But I'm, I'm thinking that maybe it's, maybe I'm missing the point because I'm a DJ and I'm trying to slot these, these slow, uh, groovy, jazzy tracks into a fluid set, uh, when it's not, you know, about, a set it's more about each track pick for the moment and less about a packed dance floor and more about a community celebrating a vibe i'm not uh, you know northern soul made sense to me because they just filtered it down to the most danceable stuff but uh, jazz funk and rare soul are quirky birds and i would have loved to have seen what crackers was all about at the time because it, yeah this is this is one of those confusing ones where it just seems like all of the people in it are the interesting counterculture uh fun people but i just don't get the actual like the dynamics musically about how it all worked because you know you and i both went through a lot of this music and and it was very confusing as far as how it would work you know yeah yeah and i and i do think that it I can sort of visualize it as a style that suited virtuoso dancers, jazz dancers, and not anybody can dance to something that's in this totally weird time signature and and has multiple time signature changes in the course of a song. But I have seen professional dancers do that kind of stuff. So I imagine it was something like that. And then, you know, the music style gets stale um, and there's this weird phase where zany behavior kind of takes over and eventually the musos kind of have to go into a back room because the main dance floor is filled with drunken yahoos line dancing and spraying beer foam everywhere and and you know running around with air horns and conga lines and stuff like that and when the the next wave of black music comes out of the states and it's things like um, electro, like Planet Rock by Africa Bambata, stuff like Peaches, um, Larry LeVan's group. The the jazz funk guys just resisted it completely. And and you know, for Chris Hill, who was one of the big scenesters, rap was bad. Electro and house were even worse, absolutely the last straw. And you know, electro is where the scene kind of bifurcates and <clears throat> rare groove, I guess is a new scene that comes out of the jazz funk that replaces jazz funk in a way, but it's, it's a warehouse scene. The new romantic fashions are big. And this is the early eighties now. And so punk has morphed into this really high fashion period. This is the era of Duran Duran and visage and other groups like that. And the face magazine and the clubs become even more exclusive. Like you talk about, I mean, if you are not absolutely dressed to the nines or dressed to match the costume contests they're having that night, no, you're not getting in there. And so even though the music, you know, they say that rare groove is kind of a, a mix of synth pop, industrial, danceable, post-punk, hip hop, electro, a little bit of house, even some go go from washington dc and a western revival with steel guitars and fiddles which 
I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm fairly cognizant of the early age. I don't know anything about that. Shut up, dog. But uh, uh, so yeah, just a crazy time. Yeah, the uh, you know we you have to mention how segregated things were at this time. Black and brown people simply weren't welcome uh, in the inner cities. They couldn't get past the doorman. So you know you have a space like Crackers, and other than that, you have to build your own spaces. And uh, you know uh, this is uh, really another another one of those things that comes out of Jamaican sound systems. You start seeing sound systems popping up, different neighborhoods and different crews having their own sound systems and doing their own warehouse parties, and. You know, when we talk about rave, uh, electronic music has really taken that 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 word rave, and it's now owns it completely. And when you say rave, that's all you think about. But the in the UK, you know, you go back to the 50s, and rave was any kind of beatnik bohemian party, and then it kind of got used a little bit during the psychedelic rock and hippie phase. But raves really got back in business with some of these uh, jazz funk warehouse parties. Those were the first UK raves. So these these guys with their sound systems, uh, these out these kind of misfits, these outcasts, these people that weren't allowed to to into the clubs started creating this own space and doing their own thing and uh, really creating a new melting pot where everybody could kind of get together. Yeah, it creates the scene that um, Acid House is going to emerge from. And my, my dog Preston apologizes. He had to bark because the mailman was coming. So can't can't have that. But let's hear a quick break from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll finally get into Acid House. All right. So, yeah, they've, they've set the scene. And there's a period when Electro is in some clubs. And there's, there's people that are more open to new music. Um, and even some people playing house, but X isn't there and the Ibiza inspiration hasn't struck yet. They haven't had the DJs go to Ibiza and see Balearic in the flesh and have that experience. So, um, you know, there's a real, there's a real resistance to house music. And, and it's interesting, even in the jazz funk rare groove scene, like you kind of notice that there's a, there's a fine line where between, between that and disco and, and it's kind of, they don't, they don't, you know, if you ask them to describe it, they probably couldn't, but they know disco when they hear it and they don't like it. I don't know if it's there, there was some kind of uh, discussion about like the, a certain level of homophobia with it uh but uh, like they would straight up throw bottles at djs that would play disco or play house there was uh th- this is this is one of those scenes where it's like you know it's all well and good to say okay i'm gonna go out there and play something different and uh, see if people give it a chance but if you're in the uk and you do that you'll straight up have people trying trying to bottle you so yeah uh, and and interestingly, in London, the resistance to house music was primarily coming from black hip-hop fans. So it's not the white old fuddy-duddies. It's not just them. They're also dissing house. But it's the young bloods that are there for the hip-hop, there for the electro and the go-go but when the house comes in you know there's multiple stories in the book of djs describing you know i'd get these notes full of just these homophobic rants that that guys just do not want uh the house stuff being played um whereas in the north house is immediately seized on like manchester and new york had had this connection because of groups like joy division and new order you know new order goes to america and breaks in new york big and early and largely because they're supported by Larry LeBan at the Paradise Garage. And so there's this connection between Manchester and New York so that when House comes to England, 
you know, the fans that have been listening to their local groups like Human League and Cabaret Voltaire, New Order, and also been big on the New Romantics, it was easy for them to adopt House. But in the South, Rare Groove, Hip Hop, and Go-Go had killed interest in synth pop. So it was just a totally different, a totally different scene. But now, and we talked about this a little bit in the Balearic chapter, but Trevor Fung uh, is a London DJ and promoter, and he regularly goes to Ibiza every summer. And he finally goes to the other side of the island and goes and sees DJ Alfredo. And he invites Paul Oakenfold, Paul Oakenfold, Danny Rampling, Johnny Walker, and Nikki Holloway to come down. And they have this religious conversion experience. I mean, this is Saul on the road to Damascus getting blasted off his donkey. These people drop X and they're converted. They get it. They want to bring this home. And Balearic being a, uh, a a term for a generalized mishmash kind of coined by DJ, or at least uh, cemented by DJ Alfredo, just a, just a big mix of everything. You could have soft cell, you could have human league, and then you could have even a YouTube track, uh, YouTube, YouTube track in there. And it would all be like mixed together along with acid house and some techno tracks. And, uh, it all just, all of that stuffiness, all of that locked in, you've got to be playing this and it's got to be, you know, seventies funk and it can't have too much disco to it. And it can't be this and it can't be that all of a sudden, uh, the barriers are brought down. These soul boys are realizing, okay, all these rules are pretty arbitrary. And truth of the matter is, uh, this all sounds pretty good together if you've got an open mind. And this is where, again, uh, it's no surprise that these guys, you know, they, Paul Oakenfold had been to uh, Ibiza before. He left early. He didn't quite get it. Then he comes back. And this time they all do ecstasy. And all of a sudden it starts to make more sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the scales fall from the eyes. And, you know, they talk about how the the – delirium club in london had tried breaking house just a few months earlier and it didn't work and that the takeaway from oakenfold and others was that they didn't have x that that was the the thing that they needed to get people to drop their resistance and they come back uh get um danny and jenny jenny ramplin open up a club the shoom in a fitness center in southwark street and all these football hooligans and football hooliganism was this thing in the 80s and there's a great book called among the thugs about this phenomenon and in the in britain because there aren't that many guns the police don't even have guns you could really street brawl to your heart's delight and in the 80s 70s and 80s this became a big phenomenon and and an sort of international problem where British soccer fans are so violent that they're traveling to Europe for the, you know, World Cup and stuff and just rioting all over Hamburg or Paris or whatever. And, and it's this international plague. But you give these guys X and suddenly, you know, they're loved up hooligans. They're, they're, they're hugging, they're dancing. Um, you know, they bring over Chicago DJs like Marshall Jefferson, Larry Hurd, Robert Owens. I mean, bam, bam. And, uh, now suddenly these football hooligans are worshiping these black gay DJs from Chicago. It's, it's, it's craziness. It's, and it's one of those things that you got to say, like, uh, uh, 
it shows the limits of, of booze culture, booze culture being, you know, one of the big reasons I got into the rave scene is because I was not interested in uh, drinking a bunch of beer, doing a bunch of shots and being a jackass and getting all aggressive. And uh, my older brother, he had a whole bunch of crusty punk friends and they were insane when they came to drinking. So I got a real eyeball on what, you know, drink culture is all about and i imagine in the uk it was a similar thing and all of a sudden you have people taking ecstasy instead of drinking booze and it completely changes the vibe it completely changes it like back in the day i wouldn't go to a rave if there was booze being served because it changed the vibe and I, so yeah. i imagine in the uk it must have been a real eye opener when people are coming and not drinking but doing ecstasy and all of a sudden, there's a completely different scene where instead of, you know, you're wearing the wrong soccer shirt, we're going to get into a fight. We're hugging on the dance floor and we understand each other for the first time. Yeah. And and um, yeah. And it's 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 just a crazy time. And there, there's a, a moment a few months in 87 when, you know, Paul Oakenfold opens up a club called Future or rather it's he's got Thursday nights in Heaven Sanctuary okay. Annex. So he's got the small room. Um, and then, so there's several months where it's this very exclusive scene, even though ex- it's not deliberately exclusive, but they're just kind of enjoying it to themselves. Yeah, Shum is basically a 200 person capacity. It's it's not it's not even really a club. You know, this is it was a it was a fitness center that they took over and uh, moved all the the workout machinery to the side. So, so at the beginning, it was 200 people and a bunch of overflow. Yeah, and then and then at Heaven, which is the big gay king disco, the high energy uh, home, um, they bring in enough punters that are into this Balearic thing that they are kind of shunted off into their own room. Like you guys go over there and party. You're too you're impacting the rest of the club, so go in there. But then in April '88, they get the big room at the Spectrum, and Oakenfold, you know says he just has a feeling that <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna get big and it takes four weeks but by the fourth week it's rammed and and they're not even playing the mellow trance stuff or the balearic stuff they're playing hardcore house and it's packed and let's hear um this is one of the first british djs to start producing and and pick up the torch from chicago this is a guy called gerald voodoo ray a guy called Gerald's uh, Voodoo Ray from 1988 and that's just a classic example of the Brits seizing the means of production and making their own house music and um, it's off and running from there that this is where they take over the pop culture scene in the late 80s and early 90s because there's just this explosion of creativity and multiple immediate bifurcation into dozens of subgenres maybe dozens is too much but, but at least three or four major subgenres are going to emerge out of britain in the next four years that totally dominate dance music for the next 20 years all around the world so yeah you, you can even hear with that guy called gerald track it's you know uh, you listen to acid house you go back to our our, our uh, techno episode where we show where we play acid tracks 
uh, being, you know, uh, what was the codified version of what Acid House is. And then you hear Voodoo Ray, which is this different thing. It's still techno, but it has this, uh, you know, you can't say that uh, Detroit is harsh and cold and spacey. And then all of a sudden Voodoo Ray has this kind of uplifting, positive vibe to it that I feel flows through all of the UK Acid House sounds. Everybody here is going for a good time. And again, that's partially the ecstasy. And, and when we talk about Oakenfold opening up the spectrum and having it go from zero to rammed in four weeks, there's a there, the accounts differ on this probably due to the, to the legality of what was going on. But the rumor is everybody who went to spectrum got a pill. And uh, Richard Branson was the owner of that club. And once everything started to blew up, he got seriously grilled on how much he knew about exactly what was, what was going on there. And Spectrum renamed itself and rebranded itself. And, and Branson took a step back because, you know, he, he basically was, uh, you know, that, that was the kickoff for, for the whole ecstasy as a revolution as much as it was an acid house revolution, the ecstasy revolution as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and X had been illegal in Britain since the 70s. There was in America, you had a period in the 80s and there was a club in Dallas, I think it was called Starks, that I actually saw them giving away X because it was legal. And uh, that was a big part of the draw of the club. It was one of the first clubs outside of Chicago or Detroit to be playing house and techno and quite an experience, but they did not have that legality uh, in Britain at the time. So it's illegal from the get go. And it just starts to spread. There's a there's a club, not even a club. There's a series of one-off parties in West London called Hedonism from February to May of '88, that merged the sound system culture that had come from Jamaica to London, and now it's it's merging into the club dancing. And this is where the rave template is perfected. Monster sound system, loads of X, and that's the thing about house music. It's one of those musics that. If you hear it on your headphones or your stereo, you're not getting the experience. You really need to hear it in the massive sound system of a club or a big rave to get it. And it carries better in one of those sound systems than rock by a long shot. Rock has so much mid-range and and guitars just do not punch the way the bass and the and the treble of house music do. So yeah, it's it's just uh, an exciting time. They also talk about the Clink Street Rip Parties, which is kind of the tougher, more East End, multiracial version of Shoom. Uh, Soul to Soul sound system is brought in. You got Evil Eddie Richards, Kid Bachelor, Mr. C as DJs. Um, starts out just as a Saturday night event, but quickly extends to Friday through Sunday. And you've got kids who spend their entire weekend bombing on X and dancing the whole time. So it's takes over London in 1988 and moves and and takes over starting in Manchester takes over the north even quicker so you know you've also got the dungeon 1988 loads of house parties uh Rob Atkinson and Lyndon C as the DJ starts with 300 the first night 1,000 a week later and in a few months they're getting 7,000 people a weekend and the quote is you could see people having life-changing experiences every weekend so this is a monumentally popular thing uh, from day one, and it's having these profound 
impacts on individuals. And some of these people, like, you know, we watched a few documentaries to prep for this, and, and people say, you know, I knew a lot of people who changed their life for the worst. They dropped out of college, et cetera, had all these big dreams and never came together. But for a lot of other people, it was the beginning of their career as a designer or film director or whatever. So this is this immensely important before and after moment in British pop culture. And, you know, say what you will about the the British political system. But, you know, uh, at this point, all those people raving from 87 onwards, you know, they're they're the people uh, maybe not in charge of this country, but they're all the, they're, they're the, the they're they are the majority. They are the uh, the of age people. If if all of the this this partying and drugs and everything else like that messed them up, you know, society would have would have crumbled by now. So it seems like everything worked out OK. All of the panic and. and and everything that they were really throwing up on all these events seems like it was maybe a, maybe not a bit overblown because they do when you watch the documentaries there is a turn you know around 1990 where where uh, organized crime gets really involved and I have no idea how that looks in the UK but when you know my scene didn't have the organized crime element but I brushed up against a scene that did have it and it was pretty scary stuff. Yeah, it, it's going to take a bad turn, and we'll talk about that next week when when things get ugly. It becomes big business. The drug dealers are in, and the police are all over it. But let's talk about Manchester a little bit more. I mean, we talked about how Manchester immediately adopted house music. It also was the home of the Smiths. So this alternative guitar, you know, the Smiths were this band that rejected electro pop and synth pop and went back to guitars although when you listen to their music stuff like how soon is now you really have to be pretty attuned to it to realize oh this is a guitar band because it sounds like a dance record they were able to have the big beats and and modify their guitars in such a way that it fit in on the dance floor and so there's this whole wave of bands coming up in the wake of the smiths groups like happy mondays and the stone roses the charlatans and spiral carpets and they quickly, they're playing the same venues, they're playing the hot scene, the club sometimes, they quickly reach out for that audience. And let's go ahead and hear um, the Happy Mondays version of Hallelujah, remixed by Paul Oakenfold. And you can hear what the Manchester thing was trying to do. the happy mondays hallelujah remixed by dj paul oakenfold and and this is where it first becomes heard of in america is when these bands sign record deals and they're trying to break them in the states and they're and they're being sold as these guys are at the forefront of this crazy new dance music that's taking over britain which is the most ass backwards way to explain it possible you know like there's no explanation of house music. There's no explanation of acid house. It's here's a bunch of new rock bands that are supposed to be the new thing. And yeah, their remix dance remixes sounded pretty dancey, but their albums would be more rock. So it was, um, I see it as sort of 
Rock's second to last gasp. The last gasp would be new metal when groups like Limp Biscuit tried to incorporate hip hop under the rock umbrella and failed. Um, and no, I mean, everybody bags on Limp Biscuit, but I'm not even down on them aesthetically. They just did not succeed in pulling hip hop into the rock milieu. And the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses, I mean, people still swear by those albums but they did not succeed in what they were trying to do, which was pull house music underneath the rock umbrella. Yeah, they, they tried pretty hard, and the Hacienda was a, was a great melting pot. And I think a lot of like New Order and Human League and, and, and uh, the Happy Mondays were important in giving dance music some credibility that they desperately needed coming out of that era where, you know, if, if you, if you play a disco track, if you play a techno track, you're going to get, you know, beer poured on you. All of a sudden you've got these, these, these bands that are, you know, cool. And they're saying it's all right. And the Hacienda being that focal point in Manchester. And there's, there's a story, you know, when, when you're looking at how the ecstasy got into the UK. There's interesting stories about uh, in, in the book that, that talk about uh, football hooligans basically bouncing back and forth from Ibiza with, uh, with with loads of drugs. But there's also another story about someone close to the Happy Mondays setting up a, a, a like basically a drug corridor between uh, Holland and the UK where like 15,000 pills would come in like every week. So, you know, these these guys were, you know, if, if their music wasn't pure rave, it was still it was still dance and it was still integrating the dance scene and it was still turning everything into this this big gooey soup of acid house. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they end up being incorporated into acid house rather than the other way around. And so I, I see it as a really pivotal inflection point in pop history. And then even the rare groove guys have to adapt and so there's a story in here um where they describe how soul boys giles peterson and chris bangs played a set and they and they followed paul oakenfold and they and he's just come back from ibiza and he's playing all this balearic and they realize whoa our entire crate is dead like our moment has passed this is a new moment and so they create acid jazz on the fly and they start, you know, they play a few things like Futures Acid Tracks and 808 States, um, Pacific State, but they manage to blend them in with rare groove stuff like Funk Incorporated's Chicken Lickin'. And so, and they, and they market themselves pretty well because acid jazz is definitely a term that you heard a lot about, even if you didn't hear a lot of the music. Yeah, it managed to get itself its own little corner in the music store, and in the HMV, kind of, uh, it had its own uh, had its own little plastic placard, you know, a little selection of CDs there. So they definitely managed to carve themselves out a, a literal niche. Yes, yes, and uh, but it's a big fall from the guys. You know, the the rare groove scene had dominated British dance clubs, you know, throughout the '80s, ever since the fall of jazz funk, and 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 jazz funk really didn't even die thoroughly until acid house put a stake in its heart so um yeah this has been an interesting chapter i mean stuff like jazz funk and rare groove were derivative they never made their own records they they there were a few bands that came along that that carried that flag but none of them really made a a, a huge impact um so we wouldn't be talking about that stuff at all in musical history unless something had come along after it and, and jazz funk and rare groove are only relevant insofar as they let the lay the groundwork they are the early training for this generation of djs that's 
just going to conquer the country and ultimately the world with Acid House and Electronic Dance Music Revolution. So, you know, it's it's a big thing. And, and they wrap up the chapter with this little section called Everyone's Invited. And that seems to be their main point, that Acid House democratized dance music and the psychedelic experience for a whole generation of quote-unquote ordinary Brits. No one was left out. Everyone is the center of attention. Final thoughts, Ryan? Yeah, I guess we're, uh, you know, when we're talking about the the importance of, of jazz funk and, and and rare groove and everything else like that, for musical historians, we can we can just kind of say, oh, it was only important in that it was like kind of the breeding grounds or, or, or the dirt from which this rose came out of. But for all those soul boys that, that were in that scene, like... Uh, Again, looking at the UK and looking at how tight it was and how stiff upper lip and how grim uh, culturally it seemed, I bet you everybody that was there uh, for, for, for that scene and was involved in that scene and, uh, and kind of came out of that scene and used the knowledge that they had and the open-mindedness that they, that they kind of had was it was it was a key element so you know it, it was important for the people that were involved no doubt it's you know kind of like how where people talk about the end of of chicago mattering around 1986 and it's like oh chicago's still there man everybody that's there was still doing house and it might not be a a historical focus point anymore but it, you know it very much mattered to the people that were there at the time uh, yeah. as far as as far as uh, you know everyone being invited that's that's the cool thing this 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 chapter sows the seeds for how it came into clubland and uh, all the overflow from shoom uh, because it was too small of a venue Th- this turns into an entire industry that goes you know out around the m25 all over england and turns into a real cultural revolution almost so yeah. I'm excited to get to that. Yeah, me too. So the next chapter is they call UK Sounds. And this is where we're going to talk about the birth of drum and bass and jungle and garage um, and hardcore house and, and uh, you know, so many styles. We'll probably go back and, and introduce the trance stuff that we skipped in the Balearic chapter as well. So for me and Ryan Harkness, this is Let It Roll techno roll we'll continue our discussion of last night a dj saved my life the history of the disc jockey by bill brewster and frank broughton we'll be back next week to continue the story thanks ryan thank you follow the let it roll podcast on twitter at let it roll cast and check out our website at let it roll podcast.com nate and ryan will be back next week to continue their discussion of last night a dj saved my life the history of the disc jockey by bill brewster and frank broughton they'll be covering the explosion of creativity that occurred when the anglo-jamaican tradition of british bass responded to the invasion of acid house and spawned a slew of new musical genres let it roll is a pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 